Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. Just an announcement before we begin our, our study. So just for the AGM this, this coming Wednesday, please note it's a, a members-only AGM just because there are some uh, member-sensitive topics that we're going to deal with, including uh, voting in the new deacons who were nominated by the members and have been tested. So I look forward to that. Uh, we do normally allow those in the process of, of uh, membership to, to come as well, but just because we have several member-only items, we, we're making this meeting a member-only meeting. So the AGM, this this Wednesday, 7 o'clock here, members only. Okay, so our passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, so please turn there in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians 13. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, we're going to look at verses 5 through 10, and uh, the title is Examine Yourself, and you'll see uh, where that comes from. So, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So, preached recently in Potchefstroom and uh, took a brother from another church with me who's interested in, in maybe helping out at, at the church plant there in some way. And uh, afterwards he said to me, it was so refreshing because it wasn't a three-point sermon. Uh, so if, you, if you're familiar with my preaching, you know that I hardly ever do three-point sermons. We just go through the text and see what it's saying. But today you're in for a treat. Uh, it's a three-point sermon. I am a Baptist preacher. So uh, we're going to have uh, three points. And really it's three tests. So in this passage there are three tests. Uh, I'm sure you saw the repetition of the word there. But there are three of these tests. One in verse 5, one in verse 6, and one in verse 7. And that's sort of the framework for this, this passage. So three tests. 
So the first test, look at verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves, so to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, uh, we are right at the end of the book now. All that's left after this is the final greetings. And he says to them, look, guys, you need to test yourselves. You need to examine yourselves. Uh, what they had been doing was testing the Apostle Paul, examining Paul, and all these false accusations. They, they believed these accusations. They kept judging Paul, and Paul now turns it on them, and he says, guys, you need to examine yourselves. They need to see if Christ is in them. If they are those who are in the faith. Uh, and so just some application right up front. Uh, Often in Scripture, and especially with the Lord Jesus, you know what the Lord Jesus says. First take the plank out of your own eye before you start taking the splinter out of someone else's eye. And so Paul is saying that, and it's a principle for all of us. Uh, we must be slow to judge. We must first examine ourselves, see, see where the sin is in our lives uh, before we deal with the sin in others. And so Paul says, look, you guys need to start examining yourselves. Look at yourselves. And this is an important principle throughout Scripture. Self-examination. Here are some passages. Lamentations, uh, chapter 3, verse 40. Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. Revelation 2, verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 1 Corinthians 11.28, uh, as we're going to enjoy communion just now, it's wonderfully appropriate that the theme for this passage is to examine ourselves because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28, but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Often in the Psalms, the psalmist will ask God to examine them. Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Uh, our hearts are so deceitful, desperately wicked, deceitful, who can know them, that it's appropriate that we say, Lord, you examine my heart. Show me those things in my heart that are not right. But self-examination, as you can see just from a, a scattering of verses, is, is a theme throughout Scripture, that we are to examine ourselves. But I want to tell you, this is not a morbid introspection. This is not that we're just always looking inward and seeing our sin and just, just going around miserable because we're so wretched. Uh, there is a, a story, we don't know if it's true, it's an ancient story, Cicero used it and even people before him used it, it's about a king uh, called Dionysius in, in Syria, and he had a servant called Damocles, and uh, Damocles was quite a fawning sort of servant, and so Dionysius said to him, you know, do you, would you like to swap for a day? You can be king for a day, and I'll be a servant for a day, and Damocles jumped at this. He said, yes, that would be fantastic, and so he went and sat on the big throne of the king, but what Dionysius did is that he hung a sword above his head that was held by uh, just a hair from a horse's tail. 
And the idea there was that he would realize how dangerous and uh, the great responsibility of being a king, especially in the ancient world where your life could be taken at any moment. And so that's where the saying comes from, a Damocles sword. It means there's something always hanging over your head. The Christian life is not that we have to walk around, that there's a sword hanging over our head, that we live with this constant fear. Uh, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Uh, for those of you who, who study church history and theology, you'll know that for people who hold to the doctrines of grace, that God saves, God chooses whom he will save, God keeps whom he will save. Uh, the flower that symbolizes that is the tulip. But somebody has said the flower that symbolizes those who believe that you know one day you can be saved and one day not saved is the daisy. You know that the daisy where you go, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. That's not what self-examination is about. Even in the passage, Paul says, don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul is optimistic even about this Corinthian church. So this is when, when we look at this passage now and, and self-examination, it's not that one must walk around saying, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm saved. We will look at uh, what can cause that. But that's not what we are called to here. Even when we come to communion, it's not so that you'll say, I doubt my salvation, I doubt my salvation, and that's the Christian life. No, uh, there's wonderful hope that by God's grace, you, you and I can know full assurance of salvation. Now the confessions, the church confessions throughout history are very helpful. Assurance of salvation is not of the essence of salvation. So you're not saved if, you, if you're sure you're saved. You might be doubting your salvation and still be saved. But we're going to look at what it means to examine ourselves. What are the tests? Uh, what must we do to see, am I a true believer? But over all of that is not that we are then to walk around uh, always examining ourselves, doubting our salvation all the time and just living in that world. That's not what God is calling us to. And from this passage we can see that there are really two tests. So uh, right at the beginning he says... They must examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. And so that's a, a, a term with a definite article, the, the, the faith that the, the apostles and New Testament authors use. It symbolizes the body of truth. The foundational, fundamental doctrines that one must hold to if you are to call yourself a Christian. So you know if you go into the shop and there's a... You know, you go to buy some baked beans, and there on the can it says baked beans. You expect to find baked beans. They have to declare what's inside. What are the contents of this, this can? Okay? They can't say it's baked beans and you get home and it's snails or something like that. Unfortunately, uh, in the world in which we live, many people can call themselves Christians. Uh, there are so many groups that claim to be Christian. But you open the can, it's not Christianity. It's something else. And so fundamentally, to be a Christian, first off, you cannot be a Christian if you don't hold to the fundamental truths of Christianity. You cannot be a Christian, you are not a Christian, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead, so he is fully God and fully man. And he came to this earth and took upon himself frail humanity, became properly human. You cannot be claim to be a Christian if you do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Now, that we're not saying unless you fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity, because nobody does. What we're saying is you cannot be a Christian if you deny the doctrine of the Trinity. You cannot be a Christian if you deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian if you're saying that Jesus Christ didn't really die on the cross, because then there is no salvation. There is no atonement. He did not pay the price for our sins. And you cannot be a Christian if you say he's still in the tomb somewhere. He rose again on the third day. And he is coming back again. You cannot be a Christian if you say, no, you're saved by grace plus works. Even if you say the works are 0.00001%. The gospel is, no, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone. It's a gift of God that we receive like little children receiving a Christmas present. Little childlike faith. I'm unworthy of this. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. My only hope is Christ and what he has accomplished. Those are fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. Corinthians, do you hold to that body of faith? Heritage Baptist, do you hold to that body of faith? And those are hills to die on. Okay? There are secondary and tertiary doctrines that are not hills to die on. We can fellowship with people who are Christian as well, but differ on other things like baptism or uh, even the gifts and things like that. But anyone who does not hold to those truths is not a Christian. It doesn't matter how many times they have the word Christian in their, in their name. It's not Christianity. And so he says that's the first thing. You want to know you're a Christian? If you don't hold to those doctrines, you should have no assurance that you're a Christian because you're not. You're not trusting in the gospel. You're not holding to what the Bible teaches about who God is. And then we see what you could say is the existential tests. He says, Jesus, don't you know Jesus Christ is in you? If you're a true Christian, Jesus Christ is in you. By his spirit, he is in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are regenerated. The Holy Spirit has come into your life and made you alive. You, you are united to, to Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are two components to this. Um, there's the witness of the Spirit. So there's this, uh, remember what the Lord Jesus said, uh, uh, my sheep know my voice. You know the voice of Christ. You read the Bible and, and you hear God's voice. Not perfectly always, not as clearly as you'd always like, but you know this is the word of God. There is an internal witness. Now that's not always a guarantee because that fluctuates. Okay? So don't build your assurance on whether I can feel that I, I know God. But sometimes God gives us that wonderful assurance. Yes, I'm a, I know him. But if you have an assurance... But you don't believe the fundamentals, that's a false assurance. The other more important thing is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The fruits of the Spirit. Or in fact, as it says, the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit. Isn't that interesting? We always think it's, you know, we go through the list and think it's all these fruit. But it's interesting that the scriptures say the fruit. It is one fruit. You can't say, no, I'm really good at love, but not so good self-control, not so much. They're, they're a unit. Okay? Now again, this is where we often fall into error because some people, 
you know, have overly sensitive consciences to say, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not seeing much change. And unfortunately, I think that's the reality, that we, you won't see a lot of change, not condoning sin, but I think when we get to, if you compare us to Christ, of course, we all fall far short, don't we? Uh, but is there some change? Can you look at the graces in your life? Now, I want to say to you some things that are not evidences of salvation that many people think are. So, I don't want anyone here to say, I'm a Christian because of this. Don't build your assurance on these things. First of them, first of all, is a dramatic spiritual experience. Listen to this testimony. The hardest test I ever faced in my life was praying. Bending my knees to pray. That act, well, that took me a week. You know what my life had been? Picking a lock to rob someone's house was the only way my knees had ever been bent before. I had to force myself to bend my knees. And waves of shame and embarrassment would force me back up. For evil to bend its knees, admitting its guilt, to implore the forgiveness of God is the hardest thing in the world. I still marvel at how swiftly my previous life's thinking pattern slid away from me, like snow sliding off a roof. I would be startled to catch myself thinking in a remote way of my earlier self as another person. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like a wonderful testimony, doesn't it? It's beautifully written. It's the testimony of Malcolm X when he became a Muslim. So a dramatic spiritual experience does not mean you're saved. And in fact, the Bible doesn't put weight on that. The church that I grew up in used to. It used to say, if you don't know your spiritual birthday, there's a question mark over your salvation. Maybe you grew up in a church like that. You won't find that language at all in Scripture. You never find Paul saying, guys, send me you know, the day that you got saved when you had a dramatic spiritual experience. He never says that. Maybe you did have a dramatic spiritual experience. Praise God for that. Maybe you didn't. That's fine. These are the tests. Is there, is there a change in your life? No matter how small. Remember a bruised reed, smoking flax, you won't quench. Do you hold to the fundamentals of the faith? John adds this test. Do you love God's people? Do you care for God's people? No, not perfectly. That's going to wax and wane as well. But underneath, is there a desire for God's people? A love for God's people? So don't think I had... No, I had a, 20 years ago, I had a great spiritual experience. Uh, I went to a youth camp. It was amazing. Uh, it was very emotional. And there was a river. And we all got baptized. And it was powerful. Uh, don't build your life on that. It's those that endure to the end who will be saved. Non-Christians have very powerful spiritual experiences, don't they? It's not a sign of salvation. What about faithfulness to church and to church services? You attend faithfully, diligently, that praise God for that, but that is not a sign that you are converted. You watch every Sunday, you're there, you're diligent, but it's just the way you were raised. That's what you do on Sundays, you go to church. It does not mean you're a Christian. Now don't stop coming. This is the best place to <laughs> This is the best place to be to be saved. It's through the foolishness of preaching, but I want to shatter 
any illusions if you think I, I, I'm a Christian because I come to church all the time. I'm, I'm faithful. Or I give. I give money. I give a lot of money. Or you've been baptized. Now God commands baptism, but baptism does not save. Remember, it's not by works that we are saved. Or maybe you, you say you have spiritual gifts. You can go through the scriptures. There are people who've had spiritual gifts who are in hell right now. You think Judas was the only guy who couldn't do miracles or something? Everyone would have known he's the bad guy. <laughs> it must be Judas because that guy's useless. You know, when we go out healing people, he's, he does nothing. He's a failure. There's nothing like that. Matthew 7. Lord, we did this and this in your name. We cast out demons in your name. I never knew you. Okay. The Puritans had a great saying, it's not your gifts, but your graces. Okay. Don't think because you have wonderful gifts, maybe you're a great preacher, a great teacher, um, really, really hospitable, uh, great administrator in the church, whatever it is, don't put your confidence on those things. Is there grace in your life? Is there? The fruit of the Spirit. Maybe it's even conviction. You think it's conviction. I, the Lord convicts me in sermons. Get convicted. Well, go and read Hebrews 6. You can experience so many things of the Christian life and not be saved. I know dear friends I, I would, who I thought were dear brothers, we'd go on camps together, we went on mission trips together, we would have fellowship after services, sure that was convicting. They were not being insincere, they were truly convicted. God was speaking to them through his spirit. They're apostates now. Conviction alone is not enough if there is no true repentance. Nor is it to think, well I'm just a nice person, everyone likes me. I'm a really nice person. Uh, a lot of people think that. They think they're just good people, uh, especially in traditional religions, traditional churches. They grow up in those churches, Anglican, Catholic, Methodist. It's just, it's the normal thing. You do nice things. You have fates and bazaars. You do stuff in the community. You're just a nice person. You do a lot of good things. But the Bible says you're not a nice person. You hate God by nature. Uh, Natalie and I were recently looking at a passage in Romans where it talks in Romans chapter 1. It says, talks about the nature of human beings, disobedient to parents, all these things. And it says by nature, haters of God. Okay? That's who we are by nature. We hate God. You say, but I'm such a nice person. I do all the stuff in the church. I do the flowers. Uh, I'm in the choir. All of those things. No. If you, if you think you're a good person, you're not saved. Okay. If I say to, you know, when you ask someone how they're doing, they say, good. Then I always tell them, there's none good. Okay. There's <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with that answer. But I, just to get the point across... There's none good. There's none righteous. There's no good people going to heaven. Strip that veneer away and you will see that person is full of lust and greed and envy and malice and hating God that if he came again as a human being, they would kill him again. That's in every human being. And so don't think, well, I'm a nice person. I'm just a traditional nominal Christian and they, I'm okay. 
None of those things are tests or evidences that you are saved. So as you examine yourself, see, do I believe what God's word says? Okay. And then, have I repented and do I seek to act on it? And is there, is there evidence in my life of a change of the fruits of the Spirit? Or the fruit of the Spirit? That's what it means to examine yourself. And that's the first test. So Paul longs that the Corinthians would pass this test. And he's very hopeful. The challenge is to each one of us. Corinthians are are dead and gone. Uh, We are still here. Those watching, those here, test yourselves, examine yourself. Do you hold to the orthodox doctrines of of the scriptures? Have you repented and put your trust in Christ alone? Do you see signs of grace, however small, bruised reed, smoking flax, but something that to say, this is, not, this is not my gifting. I'm not just good at hospitality because it's a gift. But I can see that there's something here that's not part of who I was naturally. There's been a change. There's... There is a hatred of sin, and even if there's not a full hatred, a desire to have a hatred for sin. The second test in this passage is in verse 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So now Paul is referring to uh, his defense of his apostolic ministry, which we've been looking at for, for several months. Now Paul is saying... Well, he's not saying that he's concerned that he's failed the test of being an apostle. All the way through, we've seen, no, he is an apostle. He has passed all, any tests. That, he's not worried about failing that test. He's worried that they will think that he has failed the test. He's concerned about them. Will they think Paul is not a true apostle? Will they think Paul has failed their tests of what it means to be an apostle? That's what he is worried about. So the challenge to you is, what is your view of the Apostle Paul? We've seen this already last year. What is your view of the Apostle Paul? Do you see him as, you know, so many people think of Paul as a misogynist, homophobic, outdated. There are even those who claim to be Christian who reject Paul's writings. They leave them out totally. It's very, to me, that's very... uh, Insightful, or not insightful, it's, it's insightful of their, their, their stance. That they actually say, we don't like Paul, we're going to chuck him. <laughs> they're, doing, they're rejecting the apostles that the Lord Jesus Christ chose and sent. And the most important of them is the apostle Paul, who gives us the most thorough teaching on, on pretty much every doctrine. What is your view of Paul as we've gone through it? Do you, do you also pick and choose? I don't like it when Paul says this about men and women and gender roles. I don't like it when Paul says this about ministry and ministry roles. I don't like it when Paul says this about sexual morality. I don't like, I, I'm going to leave those bits out. I'm, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Uh, you know, people, lots of people say those kind of things. I love Jesus. I don't like Paul so much. 
What Paul has been arguing the whole time is that he is a messenger of Jesus Christ. There is no dis- distinction. What he is proclaiming is the message of Christ. You can't reject Paul and not reject Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is so worried about the Corinthians. If they reject him, if they say, Paul, you're not a true apostle, we reject you, they are rejecting Christ. And so see, what is your view of the Apostle Paul? The third test, verse 7, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So it's a bit confusing. Sometimes Paul writes in an unhelpful way. Uh, it can be a bit confusing. But what's going on here is he's saying, uh, he's not saying he's actually going to fail a test and that he's disqualified or something like that and he's not a true apostle. He's talking about seeming to have failed. And so this third test is with, with respect to the false apostles. Remember the false apostles had crept into the Corinthian church and seduced them and turned them against Paul as a true apostle. And so Paul, as we saw last week, has said, He's threatened to come in power and practice church discipline and get rid of those who are unrepentant. And power is what the Corinthians liked. They had this triumphalistic model of leadership. They wanted to see some power, some display of power. And so Paul is threatened to come in power, but he doesn't want to come. Because if they repent, he will come in weakness. And that's what he really wants, as we'll see. But if he comes in weakness, the false apostles will say, See, there's no power. He will fail their test. And he says, I don't care. I don't care what they think about me. I don't care about their tests. I think some application here, maybe, in our lives is is maybe sometimes we, we, we act out of fear of what others think of us. We want to look powerful. We want to look domineering and in control. We've made statements that we'll do this and this and this, but the person has repented. That's what Paul is saying. If you're repentant, I will come in weakness. I don't care what they think. I don't care if I fail their test. Paul's saying, I'm not going to just come in power and discipline, even though people are repentant so that you know, everyone can think I'm powerful. He's going to do what is right. See what he says in verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. He's going to only behave in a way that aligns with what is true. He's not going to be intimidated and act just because there's a small group in the church that want him to act in a certain way. Verse 9, he says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. See, there it is. That's what I, I want to come in weakness. He does not want to come with discipline. He's not a tyrant or a dictator or someone who has an inferiority complex that needs to threaten and then prove it. And No, he says, I want to come in weakness. Because when I, if I, I can come in weakness when you're strong spiritually. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe 
in, in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. See his heart? See what he prays for there in verse 9? Their restoration. Paul is praying for them, for their restoration, as we saw last week as well. Just incredible, the love of this man for, his, for God's people. He's not praying, Lord, clear my name and may everyone like me and may everyone just remember I'm a great apostle. He says, I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying for the church, for their restoration. What does that mean, restoration? It's a great word. Uh, the Greek word <clears throat> originally had the idea of setting dislocated bones. Okay. So those of you who have ever dislocated your shoulder, fortunately I haven't, but I've seen it in a soccer match. Somebody dislocated their shoulder and then got put back in. It's painful, isn't it? It's not a nice thing, but it's, it's good. If you leave it out, it's problematic. You can't use that, that shoulder. Dr. Taylor is nodding her head, so I'm on the right track. <laughs> so, uh, but that's the idea, to restore what is broken. The same word is translated as mend in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, when the disciples were mending the nets. See what Paul is saying. That's what he's aiming for. He's praying for their restoration. That's what this whole letter is about. They're mending. To restore them. To restore the broken relationships and the damage that has been done. To mend it. To fix it. That's what the gospel is about. That's what Christ is about. He came to heal us. To mend us. To restore our broken relationships. In our sin and rebellion... Every relationship has been smashed to pieces, has been fractured and broken and perverted. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with ourselves. But Christ has come to restore and to mend. One of my favorite passages, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This is the passage Jesus reads from in Luke chapter 4. It's his first sermon. Okay. His, very, his very first sermon. That sets the tone for his ministry. Why has he come? Why did the Lord Jesus come? This is why he came. To bring good news. To bring the gospel. That there is salvation. To bind up the brokenhearted. To pro proclaim liberty to the captives. The, these things go way beyond socioeconomic categories. They go to what is fundamentally wrong with us. That we are captive to sin. We're in bondage to sin. And it says this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. That's the morning of repentance. You won't know Christ's forgiveness and his mending and his restoration unless there's a mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Unless you're heartbroken over your sin. So part of the, the, the thing with self-examination is maybe there's sins that you don't see. That's why the psalm is saying, Lord, show me my secret sins. Maybe you're sitting and you think, I think I'm okay in this Christian life. I'm not doing too bad. Pray that prayer. Lord, show me my secret sins. You will be shocked. Okay? 
to see how, how wretched you still are. But it's a good thing. It will bring about mourning, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. So in, in Scripture, of course, you read of ashes being taken. People would cover themselves with ashes. It's quite, really think about it, it's quite disturbing. So you, you've made a fire, all the sticks and everything is burned to ash, and then you take that ash and they would cover themselves with it. It's, it's, it's for mourning and brokenness. It's a, it's a humiliating thing. They would make themselves filthy. Uh, you know, Ash, how, how, how it marks and stains the skin. Went to a Catholic primary school and Ash Wednesday, they, they would always put an Ash cross and then you try and get it off. <laughs> it doesn't come off. Um, but, but this Ash is point. Ash is a picture of life without Christ. That's what your life is. It's just Ash. What is the meaning of it? What is the meaning of your suffering? Your sin is just destroying yourself. You're just burning, burning everything to ash. And here the gospel promises to take that ash away and give you a beautiful headdress. The King James says, beauty for ashes. Okay. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. To take away the mourning from, from your sin. And give you joy. But there's forgiveness. Christian life isn't one of, of perpetual mourning. It's to know the forgiveness of Christ. Not that you've earned it. Nothing. That's why, it's, that's why you know, people in the early church abused the gospel. Because it, it's so free. That people thought that means I can just sin and do whatever I like. No, 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 no. But if you're not even thinking that. You don't understand the gospel fully. That's how free it is. It's free. It's given to you. It's a free gift. You're not loved because of your performance. Your performance is ashes. It's brokenness. It's guilt. It's working out of a place of guilt and shame and, or pride. I'm good. That's why I got this. Or I'm terrible and I'm useless and I'm a failure. The gospel says, no, you're loved. Perfectly loved. You're complete in him. He's your father. It's not a performance. That, you know, he doesn't really like you. Today he loves you. Today he doesn't. He loves you. He knew, he knew everything that you would do. All the sin that you would ever commit. And he set his love upon you forever. Perfectly. You're complete in him. You don't need to prove anything to anyone else. You're not trying to achieve some standard so you can feel good about yourself. How do you even know if you've achieved enough? You'll never have achieved enough. So that's the promise of the gospel. And that's not just if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then cry out to the Lord. Lord, save me from this life of ashes and heartbrokenness and sin and misery. Forgive me. And he will. Spurgeon said, you can pass from death to life quicker than I can say that. Okay. Come to him. But it's for all Christians because the constant battle for every one of us every day is am I going to believe the gospel and live out of the gospel or am I going to live out of the lies of the devil and fear and shame and guilt or pride. So again, believe the gospel. He gives us the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness. 
It's not oaks as in from Natal. It's a, that's a cool oak. It's a tree. Solid, big tree. Oak trees are beautiful, massive. That's what it's saying, that God's people can be that. Uh, why heritage has the tree as a logo is this wonderful symbolism throughout Scripture. Trees are a place that brings shade and comfort, provide nests for the birds of the air. That's what you can be as a child of God. A person whose life brings comfort to others, brings shade to others, brings refuge to others, brings safety to others. And by God's grace, we as a church, the same, more so. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so here again, as we've seen all the way through, the Apostle Paul is so much like his Savior. His heart is for their restoration. His heart is for God's people. His heart is for the church, not for himself and his own reputation. He wants their restoration, their mending. And that's what Christ has come to do, to mend us, to restore us. Not just to restore us to what we were in Adam. He actually promises something far greater. Remember what Augustine said. We gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. We're in Christ now, infinitely greater. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you again for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the, the revelation that you gave him, the truth that you gave him. Thank you that it has been preserved for us for nearly 2,000 years. Lord, we thank you for Paul's example of you, Lord Jesus, how he points us to you. We do pray, Lord, that we as, as individuals and as, as a church, uh, that, that we would be praying uh, the same prayer as Paul, for restoration, for mending. Every one of us is broken to some degree or another. Every one of us needs mending. Uh, we need your spirit to work. And so we pray that you would do this, Lord Jesus. Pray for those who are not saved, Lord. Please give them grace to repent and believe. May they see the ashes of their life and turn to you, flee to you. May each one of us examine ourselves and, and flee to Christ. Take away that mourning for sin and give us the gladness that we are forgiven and loved. We ask this in your wonderful name. Amen.